Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 42, The End and a New Beginning. As September of 44 was coming to an end, places like Brussels and Antwerp were finally becoming free of German occupation. Also, the Siegfried Line along Germany's western border had been pierced by U.S. armed forces. The end of this horrid war was coming into sight. However, all this did nothing to help those Jews still hold up in the Jolie Board suburb. In fact, many of them were about to lose what little freedom they had, and much more. Having just finished off the resistance within the Makotau district, that panzer division was now en route north to finish off the Jews. And having heard the rumors that the Germans were in fact coming for them explicitly, many Jewish civilians of Jolibord, being protected by the guerrilla fighters, willingly gave up the last of their possessions, such as food and clothing, for the cause. All told, it did not amount to much. The coordinated attack came on the morning of September 29th at 6 a.m. At that moment, almost every gun the Germans had, not focused on the Russians to the east, were aimed at the suburb. This may seem like overkill, but too many good Germans had already died trying to rid the world of the Jewish menace. Within hours, Woodrow Wilson Square disappeared as every structure within it was hit several times over. The debris became rubble, the rubble pebbles, the pebbles dust. Still, shells were sent in to their midst. Those rebels that somehow miraculously survived the artillery assault were now deaf from the noise, and some would stay that way. The shells stopped coming, but they were replaced by tanks rumbling up the street. Behind them, in perfect lines, were German soldiers. The panzers had to be dealt with first, and to do that, the rebels had a few British PIAT anti-tank weapons recently dropped by the RAF. Unfortunately, the anti-tank guns were 40 pounds, had to be used at close range, say within 50 yards, and none of the survivors on the ground had ever fired one before. But there wasn't time for thinking or guesswork or for coming up with a strategy. The tanks were here, now. So, one by one, the different groups ran out from their cover, pointed their monstrous gun at the approaching tank, and fired. Some hit their targets, some did not. The same could not be said of the tanks firing back. They were driven and operated by experienced troops. By the end of the day, the majority of those that had touched the PIAT were dead. On came the Germans, finishing off what their shells had started. It was clear the People's Army was about to be overrun. Zuckerman's platoons scattered, just as had the civilians who weren't captured straight away. But Isaac's main group, those of the ZOB, met up later, at a designated location. That is, all except for Sevilla. She had completely disappeared. Zuckerman, shocked with fear and realizing what had probably happened to her, focused on his last image of her, 
a tiny woman trying to carry a rifle that was almost as big as herself. Beside himself with grief, he asked one of the Gentiles to get him some wine. He had to get that image out of his head, and this seemed the only way that would happen. Mark Edelman had suffered through the same artillery barrage as the rest, just from a different part of the district. And now that the German soldiers were closing in, he did the only thing he could, which was fight back. Using a police station as a fort, he and those with him kept fighting off German infantry and tanks. But the outcome was predictable. The man beside Mark got hit by a tank shell in the chest. The man disappeared before Mark's eyes. The same thing happened to another man on Mark's other side. Edelman then looked around and realized he was the only living person left in the ramshackle building. It was time to run. Pride and anger be damned. As noted previously, the war between the Home Army and the occupiers was not supposed to go on past a few days. The Polish civilians turned militants were thinking the end had come for Nazi Germany, and so launched their assault, which was supposed to be the last straw that drove the Germans out, which would leave the people of Warsaw and Poland little time to organize a government before the Soviets came in. The idea was that, having an established government in place, the Soviets would not try to take what the Germans had just released. But it didn't work out that way, in the short or long term. The Nazis were still fighting for Warsaw, not to hold it, but to destroy it and its people. The Home Army's resistance did not take into consideration Hitler's hatred of the country, its people, or their capital. The rebels had long ago run out of everything, but the Germans were still around and running amok with almost complete immunity, which left the Home Army with only one previously unthinkable option. They had to surrender. But thinking of the people, the average citizen, instead of just capitulating, the Home Army's ranking officers started negotiating with the Germans. They would cease their attacks against the Germans, but the Polish civilians had to be left alone. The Polish combatants had to be treated according to the Geneva Convention's rules for POWs. And lastly, because there was no trust whatsoever between the Poles and the SS, the Home Army would only agree to surrender if the Wehrmacht came in, not the sadistic elements of Nazi Germany. Perhaps needing their own break from being attacked and sabotaged, the general government agreed to this cessation of hostilities. The formal adoption of the ceasefire was on October 2, 1944. Of course, none of this understanding touched the Jews. They were still subhuman creatures outside the laws and treaties of man. Now with the battle over, those Poles or Jews captured or that had given themselves up, were sent to detainment camps, now called transit stations. These were mostly churches, as most of the other buildings had been obliterated. The Germans might have agreed not to kill everyone, but they were still under orders to depopulate the former capital and to raise it. 
and it was the transit station in St. Aldebert's on Wolska Street in Wolna that Simhal Rothauser and a group of young people were taken to when captured. Now, obviously, some of the people there were Jews, but they weren't taken away. They weren't separated. They weren't killed on the spot, as had been happening on the streets just weeks ago. No, they were allowed to stay together, and together they were taken in groups to the bombed-out train stations. The nervous, shuffling masses were told they were going to a new camp about ten miles out of town, just outside Pruskau. But they were not going to be killed, as per the agreement that ended the hostilities with the Home Army. Of course, the truth was something else entirely. Once they reached Pruskau, either one was sent to a labor, refugee, or concentration camp, depending on the level of fitness. However, some of those deemed too weak to work, or found to be Jews, were put on cattle cars and sent to places like Auschwitz. Agreement or no, as they were of no use to the Third Reich, they had no right to live. At first, the captives, when still in Warsaw, did not believe this tale, and why should they? But when they saw that the Jews were not being separated, but rather it depended on one's ability to work, they started to believe. They wanted to believe. Also, there was a weary look in most of the guards' eyes now. Every German moved as efficiently as before, but it wasn't the same manic pace that had been. The people were being moved out of Warsaw because it was going to be dismantled building by building. It was as simple as that. The camp at Pruskow was now the center of the world for those dealing with the Poles. From there, if the people were hardy enough, they were sent to work camps. If they were Jews, and no one was saying this out loud, they would soon find themselves within the fences of Auschwitz or other similar camps. And yet, perhaps because the Germans did sense the end of the war was coming, some of those people at Pruskow, if they were too weak to work and not a Jew, were sent to cities to the west that had, for whatever reason, not been destroyed, like Krakow. And those fortunate few were not slated to be eliminated. By the end of the war, almost 700,000 Poles had been evacuated from Warsaw and gone through Pruskow. Because Seymour Rothauser was one of the few young males in the new camp, he was sent to a work camp, along with 150,000 other Varsovians. Again, his non-Jewish looks had saved him. Not that he cared. He was tired, exhausted of fighting, of surviving. It didn't matter that the war was almost over. He just wanted it all to end in any way that would be fine with him. Of course, his comrades, with their traditional Semitic features, didn't feel that way, and they couldn't surrender to be placed in a work camp or sent east. But if their Jewishness wasn't enough to get them killed, and it certainly was, the accord between the Home Army and the Nazis did not include, purposefully, the People's Army. No, they would have been sent to concentration camps, one they never would have left. The only good news Zuckerman's group got was that Zavia had been found alive by Mark Edelman. What it came down to for the Home Army was, they were hoping the Red Army would come in and drive the Nazis out. 
and as this never happened, their local representatives, the People's Army, and that included the ZOB, were excluded from the agreement. And yet, the Jews of Zuckerman had it worse. They could not, like the Gentile elements of the People's Army, simply give up their membership in uniform and begin a new life in Krakow or the like. Someone brought up the idea of trying to cross the Vistula and make for the communist forces. There, perhaps Zuckerman's rank within the People's Army would bring them some comfort. But they soon learned of other leftists who had tried to cross. They were now dead, floating down the river that was to have brought them freedom. No, the 400 or so remaining members of the People's Army would stay in and around Jolie Board, even though the Germans were tearing it down, building by building. Then one of the ZOB said that he remembered a house just one block from the Vistula where he used to hide. The family, as far as he knew, had been sent to the Pruskow camp. However, still living there, as far as he knew, was the maternal grandmother, along with three young Jewish females, who were too afraid to leave the apartment. It was settled. Zuckerman and company had found their new home. That night, the 15 ZOB members crept to the house in pairs. By midnight, they were all inside. The old lady wasn't too happy to see them, but didn't turn them in when a pair of German soldiers came to her door the next day. She told the German soldiers that she had permission from an officer to stay, as she was partially paralyzed. The young men doubted her story, but they politely said they would check into it and be back. The reason for their doubt was very real. SS Chief Heinrich Himmler had stated after the Home Army's capitulation, that Warsaw must completely disappear from the surface of the earth and only serve as a transport station for the Wehrmacht. No stone could remain standing. Every building must be raised to its foundation. And so the soldiers with the necessary skills were flooding to the former Polish capital as a plan was laid out to demolish every building, every house within Warsaw. But first... It had to be evacuated, which was already well underway. Before the war, Warsaw held 1.4 million people. But now, in October of 1944, there were no more than 5,000 people left. Mostly in hiding, and mostly Jewish. They had nowhere else to go. As November of 44 came, Soviet planes could be seen flying over Warsaw. But the Germans did not shoot at them it would not have made the slightest difference in the war. That was because the planes overhead, nor the Tiger tanks sitting across the Vistula, were at the front of the Russian line. Soviet forces had long ago bypassed Warsaw, yet they did not interfere with the narrow German corridor between Warsaw and Germany proper. And the Soviets had a reason for this. By now, there were Russian forces in Prussia proper, in Belgrade of the former Yugoslavia, and at the eastern edge of Hungary. The Allies in the West were equally driving across Europe. No, the German forces in Warsaw weren't going anywhere for now, and they still had a job to do. And working on the task at hand was preferable than contemplating what awaited them just over the Vistula which meant that Zuckerman and his 14 soldiers could hear the detonations going off 
could hear the tumbling down of buildings and homes, and the sound was coming nearer. Yet some of the German soldiers were not taking a hand in destroying Warsaw. The men of the German 37th Sapper Battalion spent their days, many of them in a row, laying traps for when the Soviets did cross the river. The thousands of mines laid were connected to tripwires, and those wires were connected to everything from doorknobs to a water tap to an abandoned money box. Yet, in the end, more Jews died from these explosives, forging for food at night, than Russian soldiers. Four weeks went by, with Zuckerman and his 14 soldiers sticking to a routine that got them through those days, but their collective sanity had almost become a casualty. During the day, they hardly moved within the small room, mostly because there was not enough space, but also to avoid making noise. They would whisper to each other and quickly fell into a pattern of each person holding forth on a subject they knew well. Only at night would they leave the apartment, stretch their limbs, and gather food. Occasionally, the legitimate tenants were visited by Wehrmacht soldiers, who were always kind and respectful. But that was about to change. During the second week of November of 44, the kind German soldiers came by the apartment and told the women, with the ZOB fighters listening from the next room, that they were leaving, being sent somewhere else, and replacing them would be soldiers of the Waffen-SS. The job of those men their disgust was palpable, was to catch fleeing Jews as this part of town was about to be demolished. The German soldiers had arranged to have the ladies taken away to a town in the east, reserved for Polish Gentiles. The soldiers then bid them adieu. Soon the old lady and her nieces were gone, and in their place, in the apartment just above the ZOB members, were a unit of sappers. They were using the upstairs apartment as a headquarters until everything around them was leveled. Then they would do the same to their current dwelling and then move on to the next section of town. The only good news for the remaining Jews wasn't even good. They were down to ten members, as Zuckerman had sent out two to organize a rescue, but they were never seen again. Then two more were sent out. They did not come back either. But just as the sappers were about to finish up with the last building, their own building, a knock came at the ZOB's door. It was Tuvia's girlfriend, one of the members sent out from the second group of two. She had reached the home army and had borrowed a nurse's uniform and other necessities. Wrapping the majority of the ZOB members in gauze, the nurse then led them out. When the Germans approached them, she waved them away as if concerned for their safety. Typhus was all she had to say. The germ-obsessed Germans quickly backed away. By mid-January of 1945, the remaining ZOB members had found a new home in Grodzik. The plan now was to lay low, survive the Germans, as always, but also to survive the winter. By the night of January 16, 1945, the temperature dove way below zero. Suddenly, lights came on, all over the place, from every direction. Zuckerman and his comrades peeked out of the windows, but couldn't see for all the bright lights. Then, engines roared to life. 
then more engines, then even more. It sounded like thousands. The windows shook from the vibrations coming from the trucks and tanks as their engines tried to warm up. Before the ZOB could think of where to hide next, the vehicles were on the move. But no one came to their door. No shells pierced their walls. Instead, the vehicles, and there was every conceivable kind, were all heading in the same direction. West. The Germans were evacuating Warsaw. Not wanting to do anything stupid at the last minute to give away their presence and allow some frustrated German soldier a chance to shoot them as a parting gift, the ZOB stayed behind their door and windows. The sound of moving trucks and tanks ebbed and flowed, yet lasted for hours. When morning came, the sound of trucks and tanks could still be heard, but the source of the noise confused those inside the apartment. The sounds were getting louder, not fading away, and they were coming from the east. Again, the ZOB members peeked outside their windows, but this time they saw vehicles which had painted on the side, made in the USA. They had to be dreaming, yet they were all having the same dream. But then, coming up with those vehicles were Russian T-34 tanks. It all came together. The Russians had finally entered Warsaw. What's more, Zuckerman, Zavia, and the rest saw people running out to the streets from their hiding places to hug and shake the hands of the bundled-up Russian soldiers. The remaining Jews of the ZOB found themselves doing the same. Their realization carried them outside. No more killing, no more rape, no more torture, no more hangings, no more public executions, no more fear of waiting for death every second of their lives. Freedom. They had made it. They had survived. Yes, millions of their people were dead, including millions of Gentiles. But they, these few, had made it. And now that the constant pressure of surviving, of being hunted, was gone, those of the ZOB and many millions of others broke down. Their psyches could not deal with this change, with this new normal, which was very much like the old normal, before the Nazis arrived, many years ago. Zavia, who had seemed as hard and cold as a stone, started crying, and kept on crying. It would be a very long time before she stopped. Baruch Spiegel had the days right before the Germans left and when the Russians entered, wiped from his mind. His friends would have to tell him what happened over and over, yet he could not remember, either from his own memory or from the words of his comrades. That hole in his memory refused to be filled or covered over. As for many of the others, their breakdown came in a different form. They went on with their lives, but could no longer, some never again, smile, laugh, or feel happiness. Yet their war, as in the war they had been waging to free Poland, was not over. It would not be over for many decades. But for now, during the Yalta Conference, Stalin made it clear that, as eight out of every ten Germans who had died in the war had done so in the East, Russia wanted, demanded some security. That was most of Eastern Europe, but certainly Poland. 
Churchill did what he could, but was mostly kept sidelined by Stalin, who monopolized Roosevelt's time. Not that he had a lot left. On April 5, 1945, just one week before the U.S. president died, the U.S. officially withdrew Poland's government-in-exiles accreditation. Those people had been carrying Poland's soul and honor, but no longer any authority. Now that Poland's future was sealed, the communists tightened their grip on Warsaw and Poland. During the first six months from when the Russians entered Warsaw, tens of thousands of home army officers were arrested and never seen again. Whereas Zuckerman's decision to join his tiny ZOB band to the People's Army now paid huge dividends. The communists within Warsaw bent over backwards to help those with him, and Zuckerman made the most of it. In the coming months, most of Zuckerman's time and energy was devoted to getting all Jews who wanted to taken to Palestine. Yet the British were not warm to this idea, getting pressure as they were from Arab leaders. To make it worse, those in power in Warsaw were not motivated to help. So Zuckerman focused on his small band instead, especially Sevilla, as she was now pregnant with his child. Pulling as many strings as he could, Isaac managed to get permission for Zevia to leave the country, which she did in June of 1946. But then, around that time, programs started up again against the Jews. This would never have happened without the blessing from Moscow. Zuckerman again charged into the fray, talking, pleading with anyone of significance who would listen. And then, suddenly, for whatever reason, but probably due to a deep game the Soviets were playing against their allies, by late 1946, word came that Polish Jews were allowed to leave and enter Palestine in large numbers. By the end of October of 1946, 70,000 Jews had left their former country. By December, that number had risen to just over 115,000. Isaac Zuckerman was one of that number. He would be joining Zavia. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So that's it for the uh, Jews in Poland. Uh, next time, we're going to start a series on British special forces behind Rommel's line in North Africa. And yes, the first one will be out in a couple of days, certainly before the end of this month. Oh, sorry, one more thing. Uh, I just received another shipment of coffee mugs, so I wanted to start doing a, the coffee mug giveaway again for the members because I really do appreciate you supporting the show. So this time around, it's Graham Baker from BT Connect. So Graham, if you could give, send me an email, um, wwiipodcast at gmail.com. I'll get your address, and I'll be happy to send that out to you. So thank you everyone for listening and supporting the show, and I'll see you in a couple days with the first one of the next series. Take care, everyone.